Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Covered some of the more Old West stories. Uh, yes, now we're... We're looking at the Great Depression era now, um, and it's sort of fitting, really, with Springfield when you think about it, because the very first prisoner to the Missouri State Penitentiary in Jeff City was from Greene County, sentenced in Springfield for stealing a pocket watch. 1836. Oh. <laughs> I have a pocket watch. I did too. <laughs> <laughs> I did not steal it. Um, either so uh, so hopefully when we go to the penitentiary they won't keep me exactly hopefully they'll let us back out yes and you know what we here on dark Ozarks, we cover a lot of folkloric issues we've covered a lot of uh of paranormal we conduct paranormal investigations this typically we are dealing with um crime if we are dealing with the subject of crime we're dealing with it from the aspect of uh, almost periphery because it if it overlaps or relates particularly to a paranormal investigation in mm -hmm. this episode while we may touch on hauntings we're really focusing on the crime aspects as they relate to Southwest Missouri and to the Queen City in particular. Yes, and I think in that regard, um, we can kind of jump off with Bonnie and Clyde. Which is a great subject, very iconic. Um, and <clears throat> just in that regard, what, what do you think it was now, in, in the larger scope, during this era, and, and I think not unlike the, the Old West era coming out of the Civil War, in this case, coming out of the, the Roaring Twenties and uh, Prohibition, mm -hmm. we, we have situations in which larger authoritarian structures, uh, as well as industrialist uh, forces, were making major changes, uh, mm -hmm. social and economic changes to uh, America as a whole, heavily impacting, oftentimes negatively impacting the rural uh, or the, the small town populations. And of course, in the case of the, uh, you know, the 1870s, you're, you're looking at the, this time coming out of the devastation of the Civil War. In the 1930s in particular, you're coming out of the high points of the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties, but going directly into the economic devastation of 
the Great Depression, as well as uh, uh, the, the severe um, nationwide impact of things like the Dust Bowl, the droughts, uh, severe winters during the 1930s, severe, um, for goodness sakes, locusts, uh, grasshopper uh, plagues, etc. And you were, we're looking at this time when, in, in both cases, some of the most vulnerable populations were being heavily impacted and industry, uh, the railroads, the banks uh, became targets by the common people. Most common people could not respond. Some did. Jesse James uh, in the, the first iteration as well as many others. And then obviously in the, in the 30s, we see a number of, of quote unquote outlaws gangsters, certainly strong elements of organized crime. Mm -hmm. Bonnie and Clyde, so we, we've established that this, this dynamic was going on. Bonnie and Clyde really seem to particularly capture the imagination of the American public. I, they did. Uh, it, it, it's kind of um, a backward story in a way in that they didn't so much in the beginning. Um, they had their supporters, they had those that helped them, but one, then once their you know, sort of the iconic photos were found at the hideout in Joplin, Missouri, and were put out in APV bulletins and wanted posters and so forth, they, they got this image of they, you know, they really were these brutal gangsters and these murderers because they, you know, because they had candid shots they were you know holding guns and so forth and some of them you can tell they're joking around when they're doing it um with each other but it painted this picture of violence and so they, they weren't seen as a robin hood character yet characters yet um i think that really came with their killing um and it was so brutal and then it, it started turning into, a, you know, this romance and this, you know, this love story. And then, of course, over time, that legend grew and was sort of codified in the movie with Warren Beatty. Yes, and Faye Faye Dunaway, which is uh, and a fantastic um, Foggy Mountain Breakdown soundtrack. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> And was it realistic? No. Uh, for one thing, you know, they certainly, they did not look those parts, uh, the, the, the real Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, they, they were not glamorous. They were not movie star, you know, good looking people, that kind of thing. Um, but the movie helped build that legend. And it's, continued it has it has uh, i think it's it's a it is an incredibly powerful motif and something that perhaps just as a as a genre or as a motif there is that robin hood element but th there's also the even though it's very much a misnomer the the idea of 
mm, freedom against authority. The idea that somehow you're going to do this and you're going to get away. Right. And and that part of it kind of applied there because not so much the the Robin Hood, you know, robbing from the rich, giving to the poor with Bonnie and Clyde. Um, that did apply with uh, Pretty Boy Floyd that we'll get into later, but not Bonnie and Clyde. Um, but I think for a lot of people, they you, a lot of people don't realize the other part of what was going on societally was because of the economic crisis, because of everything going on, there, there were very few jobs, lots of foreclosures, people losing their homes, losing their farms, and so a lot of just social instability and resentment. Yes. And resentment at the circumstances and the target of the resentment tended to go towards the banks and, yes. and the people who held money at that time. And so uh, there, there, there was a, a feeling for some people that, oh, you know, the big guy got it stuck to him and yeah. good for them. Mm -hmm. And um, when, when you begin to understand the, the kind of mm, economic desperation that many people found themselves in, mm -hmm. it is, while not legal, it is understandable. It, it is, it, you know, certainly, you know, you have to, you have to look at all of these situations in the context of the, of the moment that it happened in to really yeah. understand them. Um, but Springfield was pivotal in this story arc for Bonnie and Clyde, because as far as we can tell, as far as is known, the first time that they ever kidnapped a police officer, which they ended up doing a number of times, but the first time it happened, happened in Springfield. Yes. <laughs> on St. Louis in front of the Shrine Mosque. Yes. Which by the way, uh, pivoting for a second, is haunted. And I've done an investigation there years ago. It's an amazing structure. With it a, is. With a, with a phenomenal history. I, uh, I love the, the way that its architecture dominates downtown. It's incredibly evocative. And of course, even just dealing with some of the history of, of, the, uh, of, of the Shrine Mosque, it is, has, has had an enormous number of events, some of great significance, um, and, and individuals having passed through those spaces, those halls are yes. by itself is amazing. It, it really is. And I, I guess just to, just to insert, you know, the slide when we talk about paranormal, I, I did have an experience there during the investigation. This was about 10 years ago um, and encountered um, uh, apparition of a, what, a, what was a small boy and uh, uh, who said his name was Tommy. Mm. He would, uh, appear, actually appeared to predate the, the Shrine Mosque though, because he, he um, seemed to, he was dressed in earlier period clothing, I, I'd say early to mid 1800s. Wow. 
which of course there was a lot of things going on in that section of Springfield at that time. Exactly. So uh, no, no other details that I know of, and I don't know, you know, a, a, a historical context of who it would be, but that was a personal experience. Yes. Um, I'm, I want to dig into that for just a moment. What, okay. how did, how did the apparition come about? Um, we were doing an investigation and um, we were actually upstairs in the catwalks and, uh, excuse me, <laughs> <laughs> My, Milo is getting involved here. Um, uh, and for, for folks who don't know, um, Dark Ozarks and State of the Ozarks has now several mascots. Yes. Um, uh, ghost hunting dogs. I have Sky, the uh, the American Basset, and uh, from, from Sugar Camp Farms. And you all recently uh, acquired a wonderful new addition to the family. His name is Milo, and uh, he was actually a rescue. He was a rescue, but uh, uh, appears to be um, predominantly American foxhound. Yes. Um, and does seem to take notice of activities. So uh, both, I'm excited. Both of our our puppies do seem to be tuned in to their environment. In some yeah. cases, more tuned in than we're physically able to be as human beings. Yep. And uh, and they're both very very sweet. I, mean, I love yep. Milo immensely. Oh, and I love Sky. So. <laughs> so for for uh behind the scenes and certainly for upcoming uh facebook subscribers there's a really good chance that you will be seeing um milo and sky in action yes. on investigations definitely <laughs> so what did you want to delve into further on that <clears throat> well the 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 things that really jump out to me if you are a fan of the film uh if you've seen the warren Beatty and faye dunaway film with the amazing banjo soundtrack uh <laughs> which probably did as much to popularize american bluegrass as it did to further the mystique of bonnie and clyde true that and and for the record the first time that i watched the film pop culture reference oh, um, the uh uh, Marshall, um, is it Marshall or the uh, Ranger? He's a Texas Ranger. Texas Ranger. The Texas Ranger is played by Denver Pyle mm -hmm. uh, of uh, Dukes of Hazard fame. Uh, mm -hmm. For those who are familiar with Dukes of Hazard, it's Uncle Jesse. Yeah. And on the Andy Griffith Show. Yes. Uh, Briscoe Darlin on the Andy Griffith Show. And I grew up with Dukes of Hazard. And so the first time that I watched Bonnie and Clyde, I'm, it is designed. They are, they are presented as, I would say, I think it would be fair to say they are presented as glamorous anti-heroes. Yes. And they are within the context mm -hmm. of the film. They are. Yeah. And of course it's Warren Beatty and it's Faye Dunaway. So they <laughs> are. And <clears throat> At the same time, first I wasn't terribly old the first time I watched it, and about three quarters, you know, halfway through, I'm going. They made fun of Uncle Jesse. <laughs> I 
they need to pay for that. And they did in the end, in, in reality. <laughs> yes, yes, they did. So that was my first experience, but I have the film on DVD. I think it's amazing. Highly recommend that people watch it. That said, there is, you can watch the entire film and have very little, if any, uh, understanding that so much that was pivotal in their crime spree mm -hmm. took place in, in the Ozarks and in Southwest Missouri. And the fact that uh, three, three iconic moments in their career of crime, first, Springfield in the uh, in direct proximity to the Shrine Mosque. Um, second, a uh, long distance getaway uh, involving a brief kidnapping that intersected with Reed Spring. Mm -hmm. And the and the Reed Springs Junction, which I just drove through like a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> and realized based on the information that the police barricade was set up where the the old viaduct is, where the where the, mm -hmm. the train goes through, um, which is the same tracks that run through Hollister. It's all getting very close to home at this point, and yeah. they uh, they nabbed uh, and a gentleman and held him hostage until they got to Burrowville uh, mm -hmm. because he could point the, the back roads uh, over toward Cape Fair. And an interesting intersection of, uh, of crime and uh, folkloric element and paranormal as well. The, the evidence is, strong evidence is that they took the road out past Dead Man's Pond or the Yoakum Pond. Uh, oh, really? Mm -hmm. so, interesting uh trying to get over trying to take the back roads avoid the cops at the reed spring junction mm -hmm. and get over to what is now west 76 mm -hmm. and then to get around and then get from there to barrowville and of course barrowville arkansas across the state line Mm -hmm. So, and one one story involving them, of course, they're driving super fast. They slam on the brakes, and there's a, a I think a couple of teenage girls who were, you know, had just crossed the the old road, and they they're like, "Do you know how to get to, you know, Barrowville the back way, etc." And the girls uh, just faint faked ignorance and said, "No, we have no idea." And then later figured that they'd probably save themselves from a temporary kidnapping because uh, exactly. if, if they had said yes we know what the direction or know how to get there they probably would have forced them into the car yeah so that that story and, and just the the fact that um of course you know dealing with the the, uh, the, the same aspects Interestingly enough, I think there, for those of us who did grow up with Dukes of Hazard, uh, the idea of high, high speed cars, uh, in this case, V8 Fords, which seemed to be uh, Clyde Barrow's vehicle of choice for getaways. And yeah. the fact that you could ostensibly get away if you had a fast enough horse. Uh, in this case, uh, a V8 <laughs> it's true. Which is a, 
a concept that we really struggle with today. Yeah. Yeah. Goodness. Um, part of that is because we um, have a harder time outrunning technology. Yes. Yes. Um, and the network of communication that brings us closer together. And and um, your you know your pursuits are not going to stop at the, at the uh, state line and things like that, which happened then. And yes. then you know actually others other stories uh, with Bonnie and Clyde and the Ozarks include, of course, the uh, the shootout at their at the Joplin hideout, which is still there, and I've investigated. Um, and then the actually officer Purcell, uh, being the first officer being uh, kidnapped by them in Springfield, the last officers they, um, uh, took hostage were actually in Commerce, Oklahoma, which is just across the state line and technically still in the Ozarks. Um, yes. and in fact, that happened after the shootout at the at the hideout and all of their photos were released and um one noble thing that happened during that trip was that um um bonnie kept complaining to the officers that she was not a gun mall and she did right. not smoke cigarettes that it was just a joke photo yes yeah. <laughs> there's <clears throat> Uh, something I want to I want to dig into a little bit. I was having a conversation a few weeks ago, actually, about this, and the the question came up: uh, Why couldn't, for example, um, law enforcement in one county, say in Missouri, mm -hmm. uh, just telephone law enforcement in, say, uh, an Oklahoma county? and have law enforcement waiting for waiting for them as they cross the state line. What, what was the dynamic there that, that allowed people to cross state lines at that point? Well, to, to do that, you um, technically then you would need a federal crime. Um, you need federal involvement. Um, and uh, there was just less coordination. Um, mm -hmm. And so um, it, was, it was just viewed more independently. You know, what happens here happens here. What happens there happens there. Um, and uh, yeah, they just, the systems were not plugged in to each other the way they are now. That was a lot of it. And um, not as much cooperation either. Right. <clears throat> and that, so just jumping forward, spoiler alert, Bonnie and Clyde did not make it to Mexico. Um, no, um, they, 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 and that's the thing I've always said is they should have just gone to Mexico instead of going to Louisiana and instead of trying to turn themselves in. And that maybe that's one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that they they tried to turn themselves in at the end, and the Texas Rangers um, 
pretty well made sure that didn't happen, um, which does kind of tie back into the events in the movie that you described, which are based on events that happened in the general area around Joplin, Missouri. So, yes, and and it's it's interesting to note while Bonnie and Clyde may be two certainly two of the most well known uh, actors in this in this era. They were by no means the only. There were no. many, many individuals who were embarking upon their life of crime and uh, sometimes to a grand scale. Yes. And uh, I think let's talk just a little bit about the kidnapping of Officer Purcell. Um, yeah. it's, it's easy to, to look at it sort of in hindsight. Um, when this took place, this was several months before the shootout in Joplin and the photos coming out. Right. This was, this was, it was January 26, 1933. Right. And the, the uh, events in Joplin at the shoot at the hideout were in April. So roughly three months. And so um, they were relatively unknown in this area they hadn't made a big name for themselves yet um and certainly were not on wanted posters everywhere um but they were looking they they were in a in a car from out of state they were looking for another car to steal um because uh, apparently they were having some trouble with this one and so they spotted a, a, a car that was parked in front of the shrine mosque with i think washington state plates on it and so they're looking it over and looking it over enough that officer purcell he was a motorcycle officer noticed that they were taking too much attention paying too much attention basically so he started following them and then um pulled them over and uh when he got off his bike or his motorcycle to walk up to the driver's door the door opens and Clyde Barrel comes out with a sawed-off shotgun that's effective that's effective and so they they kidnap him put him in the bat seat um Bonnie's in the bat seat with him um another gang member um was in the front seat and um he said that there were bags of guns on the floor that he basically his feet were on rifles and guns and there were bags of money <laughs> i mean it almost looks like a beds money cartoon <laughs> um and they were looking um they were discussing directions and how to get out of town and it, and it wasn't it was pretty apparent that they weren't as familiar with Springfield uh, and so he ends up giving them directions and uh, they end up going through Bolivar through Greenfield and actually ultimately they end up just north of Joplin, Missouri, and let him out at Stone's Corner, 
which you may be familiar with as the roundabout. <laughs> oh my God. Excellent. Going to the farm. Going to the farm. So yes. literally they, they, they let him out about two miles from our family farm. Yes. Yes. And he had to walk to, he had to walk to the general store to, to call the, and then he called the police department Joplin who then called Springfield. Um, Clyde also uh, relieved him of his um, pistols. He had two um, uh, custom made Russian pistols with pearl grips and um, that uh, had cost quite a bit of money. Mm -hmm. And his accounts contemporaneous were less flamboyant. Over time, his accounts became more flamboyant and less charitable, particularly towards Bonnie, um, yeah. which I, I find amusing. Um, and then once the photos were found and identified, he he identified them as his captors. And also one of the photos that they found, um, Clyde Barrow is holding Officer Purcell's gun. Mm. And it's identified, it's, it was custom enough that it was identifiable in the photo. So uh, pretty well sealed it that yes, they are the ones who kidnapped him. Yes, and essentially county coup. Yeah. <laughs> Realistically, one one of the uh, one of the the points Purcell, uh, it it being interviewed, uh, described Clyde quote as a dark faced desperado, Bonnie as quote not the least bit beautiful, and uh, <laughs> their their sidekick um, as quote a chunky thug. Yeah. <laughs> Officer Purcell was not impressed, apparently. <laughs> well, they got the buster up. That better of him. Um, exactly. And in yeah, uh, a long a long ride and, and a long ride back. So and uh, a lot of embarrassment realistically. Yeah. Yeah. But but again, this was you know, not unknown, but sort of the more the beginning of some of these kinds of of kidnappings. Um, there certainly had already been bank robberies with the Great Depression, but sort of these on the road outlaws, um, kidnapping officers, and so forth that seemed to pick up more in the you know early '30s. And so again, it's a situation. People, you know, you didn't expect that. No, no. And it, it, I, I think that culturally there's a, a bit of a dichotomy uh, pre, uh, pre industrialization, essentially, pre urban industrialization, that so much of America, there obviously there were places that were were very dangerous. There were places that had a lot of crime. Mm -hmm. uh, there were places that you, you had to be ready for these types of things. But 
a great deal of rural America was inexpressibly bucolic. It was uh, a, a, a place where the, the outside world largely did not intrude in the sense mm-hmm. of crime. Um, my family members, my previous generations in rural Southern Iowa did not lock their doors. Um, they did not lock their cars. The same and, you know, with my relatives in Kansas. And, and you know, fast forward to, uh, to the eighties for, for us, uh, we did. Yeah, and, but there was there's simply the understanding, and I grew up with the understanding that it didn't used to be like this. Mm-hmm. And so, so I think that within the 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 gangster era, the sort of depression era, criminal um, concept also hit home in unique ways to the public for those reasons as well. That's true. That's true. And it, it, it really did make an impression when you had uh, outlaws that were that bold, that, that gave rise to the legend because someone was that bold. Um, I think in counterpoint uh, to Bonnie and Clyde, who by all accounts, they, 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 you know, they were not helping other people out. There were, over time, there, there were those that did, did give them assistance and, and um, let them fly under the radar in certain places, usually places that they had a connection with uh, previously, family and so forth. Um, flip side is Pretty Boy Floyd, who really ironically, um, has even more contact uh, with the Ozarks overall in some ways because um, he, he grew up around the Kutzen Hills area in Oklahoma, which is in the Oklahoma Ozarks. And he really, he really did sort of pursue that Robin Hood outlaw pattern that say Jesse James did, you know, the legends of helping out, you know, the the widow that's about to lose her farm, the, the story about the James brothers, things like that. And yeah. Pretty Boy Floyd did the same thing. He often would give money to uh, people in need. Um, he would be he he would give money to entire towns to help feed them through the winter things like that um so that to be honest you know in that area he was considered a hero during this time period that people were starving yes and i think that that really highlights something we've largely within a comparatively speaking, highly prosperous generation mm-hmm. that has, has had comparatively little uh, social upheaval. Exactly. That, um, that, you know, that we've enjoyed. That it, again, is 
difficult for many to wrap their heads around the dynamics of what was going on at that time. And we have a very inert idea of uh, larger in industry, larger, um, larger finance, larger uh, authoritarian structures and powers that be. We simply assume, and and you know, in in past generations, past several generations, it's you know been a uh, an effective or a, a commonplace assumption. Uh, carried out by common sense that these structures have all of our best interests at heart and so to go against one is to be outside the pale yes and something that we see with the particularly financial upheaval um that the the, the devastation the economic devastation the families uh starving in uh, during the Dust Bowl, et cetera, uh, were you know, some, of, some of the eggs that just had to be broken uh, in order to, uh, to weather through these processes, you know, that being, a, I, I think, a, a, a rationale. And consequently, suddenly the individuals like Pretty Boy Floyd uh, were the benevolent not authority, but the benevolent person in charge. Exactly. And um, another thing that is a little different in his case than, say, Bonnie and Clyde is he actually had a family, yes. um, uh, including a young son, and really ended up getting into crime because he was in that kind of situation himself in the 20s, trying to work and support his family and really trying to go the honest way and nothing working and ended up um, getting into you know robbery and so forth and then ending up at the uh, Missouri State Penitentiary and some people say why are we talking about this and those arts in Oklahoma about Springfield well while he was in prison he met someone and became friends with the Young Brothers. And um, particularly um, Harry, the youngest brother, and um, the Young Brothers are definitely a, a Springfield story with Pretty Boy Floyd playing uh, a role in one way or another. Um, yeah. And so I think uh, that having sort of that background on, on him, I think is interesting and helpful. Um, now, by the same token, he, he, killed, uh, he killed at least 10 men. Right. And um, ironically, he, he didn't put notches on it again. He put notches on a pocket watch. We're back to the pocket watch. We're back to the pocket watch. And, um, but uh, then we look at the young brothers and they, they are definitely a, it seems to be a product of, of the upheaval and the economic instability that was going on. Um, 
practicing. Agreed. Agreed. Now, <clears throat> something that is is of interest to me is that uh, many many of these characters made their way into folk song. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Pretty Boy Floyd has his own folk song. Uh, mm -hmm. It's actually in, in the Max Hunter um, library archive, which mm -hmm. I think is is interesting. It's and it's pretty accurate. It is. There's uh, that aspect. Um, there, something that really struck me just momentarily uh, out of out of the reports. Um, obviously, very two different men, mm -hmm. uh, but both uh, received an education in how to become much better criminals uh, by their time, through their time at the penitentiary. Yes. And that's Billy Cook. That is Billy Cook. That's the story for another day. It is. <laughs> it is. Um, but I just, that, that connection with, with Jeff City really yeah. stood out in that regard there's also a really interesting that to me i think this has a direct tie with with springfield uh and we'll come back to the 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 primary tie with springfield but uh the the temporary kidnapping of sheriff jack killingsworth from bolivar yes um and i don't know whether we want to um touch on that now or after the young brothers because it, it it happens later in time actually right so let's let's jump over to let's jump over to the young brothers and then we'll come okay. back okay um now the young brothers um there there were a number of children but the the brothers and uh, that tended to have run-ins with the law were paul harry and jennings um and got into trouble through the 1920s um just like pretty boy floyd and uh they eat all three of them served uh terms at missouri state penitentiary yes. uh for theft burglary things like that um jennings and paul also served um terms at leavenworth Mm. Um, and as a result, local law enforcement in the Springfield area, they knew them. Um, and that kind of plays into what happened too. the fact that they knew them um, as well as they did, I think um, ended up being a disadvantage for the officers because they thought they could, could they could handle the situation easier. Do you think that uh, law enforcement at that era, not being more casual, but being more, mm, for lack of a better word, hometown? I, I think in a, in a, to a degree, but in this situation, the, the, the evidence seemed to point to, they thought that they 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 thought that they could talk to the boys they they have they had not killed people before they had not you know shot at people they primarily you know small-time robbery stealing cars things like that um 
so to be honest, I just don't think they thought that they were going to walk into a shootout. Which, however, they did. They did, which also comes into play of whether or not the brothers were the ones who, you know, initially started the shootout. And that leads to, you know, you know, questions that linger to this day. Um, but, and, and really even this, even the situation that led to the massacre um, started out with a stolen car. It, it was not, you know, a bank robbery. It was not taking someone, you know, hostage, that kind of thing. Um, basically, um, one of the brothers had, had been involved, uh, now I take that back, one of the brothers had been involved in a shooting with a Republic officer a couple years earlier, and, um, but even at that, they, they did not view them as a, as a big risk for that, um, and um, basically they had been laying low because of the shooting for a couple of years, but would come into town every so often. And the family farm was uh, at Brookline, just south and, of town basically. Right, um, and my understanding is Brookline is now part of Republic? Pretty much, yeah. Um, yeah, Republic has extended out basically, you know, okay. but, um, and um, their, their father had died during the, the 1920s. Uh, his father, their father was very well respected. When they first started getting into trouble, you know, they would, you know, he would bail them, he would bail them out and um, until they started end up going to prison. And so basically, December 30th of 1931, um, the brothers end up in town um, trying to sell a stolen car. And they, they weren't having much luck at it. And so they ended up enlisting a couple of their sisters to help them. And um, let's see, and that was uh, Lorena and Vanita. Um, Harry and Jennings were, were the, the two brothers that ended up with the massacre. And basically car dealers starts getting wise that this car may be stolen, it's not really theirs. And so the sisters end up um, admitting that the brothers had put them up to it after the, the dealer had called the police. Yes. And so the police go out and they pick up their mother, uh, Willie, their father had passed away by this point. And so they, they question her and um, finally, you know, they figure out that the brothers are at the farmhouse. Um, so, but they really didn't plan, make a plan of action when they went. They basically just got in cars. There's 10 officers. Um, and um, they just go out there. 
and uh, they they knock on the door. There's no answer, and then they are trying to decide what what to do. Now, one of the officers um, walks around to the back door, um, and he knew the boys. He knew the family personally, and I think that was again part of the problem is he knew everybody and so he thought they would just listen to him and basically the story went what they could piece together that he probably did not even get words out when he got to the back door and there was there was a gunfire and he gets shot and so there's a shootout and within just minutes you have six officers dead three wounded i believe and uh, the brothers escape out the back door uh, now a lot of people conjectured at the time and still do that the brothers were not alone that pretty boy floyd was in the house with them mm. and it, he would come and visit the family um, and some people, you know, might say, well, why Springfield or whatever, because he was from Oklahoma, but, um, Ricchetti, um, who he sometimes would, uh, work with and, and comes into play with the kidnapping of the sheriff later on, um, lived in Bolivar. And so they often would lay low in Bolivar or Springfield at the Young Farm. Um, and also I've heard uh, tales that uh, there was a house at Humansville that they would lay low at. Very interesting. So, so um, it would not be unusual for him to be in the area. And so there's a lot of conjecture that the reason there was shooting started and and the officers were ambushed was that it was really Pretty Boy Floyd and not the brothers who started it. Um, but the long and short of it is the brothers get away. And then about three days later, uh, they, they get word they think they're heading to Texas. There's connections in Houston and they find they actually find them three days later, January fifth, nineteen thirty-two, at a house in Houston. And it's um, been described as the largest manhunt in Texas history. Actually, trying to track them down, and uh, they were there under assumed names. And the police raided the house, and they say when they went in, they found the brothers dead, and that it appeared to be a murder-suicide. Yes. <laughs> um, now, it, it is interesting that all of the records from the Houston Police Department on the manhunt and the crime scene just disappeared mm. shortly afterwards. That is extremely. So, 
the end of the day, we simply don't know. Uh, what mm -hmm. we do know is that the massacre in Brookline um, was indeed a massacre, especially in regards to the history of uh, American law enforcement. It was. It was the largest um, loss of uh, uh, law enforcement in a single incident up into 9-11. Yes, which of course explains uh, the scope of the manhunt. Yes. And it could explain the ultimately unknown events in Houston. Very true. You just you you just don't know. And and um, uh, people who knew the brothers um, said that you know they they were surprised that it would be a murder suicide. Um, and so you know, of course, there was conjecture that maybe the police just you know killed them without warning and and said that. And when the records disappeared, that didn't help. You know, rumors. Um, but it's hard, it's hard to know. Um, now, sort of at the aftermath of this is, is kind of strange too. Um, the, the, the brothers make out, basically make out the back door and get away. Uh, crowd gathers and they start shooting up the house and they want to burn the house down. That's a contaminated crime scene. Well, and the officers that were there were saying that they actually, some of the crowd actually drug a mattress out on the front porch and set it on fire. And officers had to stomp it out, stomp the fire out. So basically, um, the, the crowd, there's a crowd of about 50 people, basically destroyed the house. Um, so then the, the Springfield police, they release the mother and the sisters and they come home and their house is pretty well destroyed. Um, and interestingly, then between that time and him being killed a little over a year later, Pretty Boy Floyd would come through town regularly and he basically he basically gave the mother and sisters money and they and supported them. Mm. that is fascinating and again it, it explains well one of the things that we always come back to with dark ozarks is sometimes there are no easy answers this mm -hmm. is one of those cases because you have individuals that you want to put in a in a box and say yeah. and, and label the box and then their activities prevent you from fully doing that yeah which also goes to say you know that even legends and even very notorious individuals and stories are not one-dimensional. No. And in, in continuing uh, with Pretty Boy Floyd and just sort of coming off of this, we have this June 16th, 1933 case of the kidnapping of Sheriff Jack Killingsworth. And there's a, a pretty substantive um, record of this experience that was collected from Bernice Killingsworth, uh, Jack's, um, at the time, uh, widow. But yeah. it's to me, it's fascinating. And for those who are familiar with these locations in, here in Southwest Missouri, um, 
Highway 13, Bolivar, Springfield. These are these are hometowns. These are local mm-hmm. places. It the the connection with Humansville I find particularly fascinating. Yeah, and I've heard that on multiple occasions and read accounts that um, Ricchetti, um, who um, was with Pretty Boy Floyd during the kidnapping, that he had relatives at Humansville. And that's where they that, would lay low. That would, again, make sense. Uh, I have to step away for just a few seconds. Uh, okay. But coming into this story, if you could just share, we both reviewed this story, uh, mm-hmm. some of the details of this kidnapping. It was, it's not that dissimilar from the Purcell case in terms of uh, a, a more than interesting day for this particular member of law enforcement. Exactly. And, and ultimately, there is a Springfield connection um, uh, before it's all over with, a direct Springfield connection. But yeah, this is um, June 16th, 1933. Um, Jack uh, Killingsworth is the sheriff of Polk County, and he's uh, taken uh, hostage at gunpoint from a garage on West Broadway. Uh, by Pretty Boy Floyd and Adam Rochetti. And Rochetti would work with Pretty Boy Floyd at different times. Um, and um, basically, um, they were... Um, they were traveling. They had been in the... Um, Outlaws Floyd and Ricchetti had been in Springfield. So they were actually coming from Springfield when um, um, the car that they had stolen in Oklahoma gave out. So um, they are um, at a garage um, that Rochetti's brother works at, his brother Joe. And then the sheriff walks in and the sheriff just happened to walk in, but they recognized each other. The sheriff knew Rochetti, knew Floyd. Um, Floyd's picture had been in the newspapers. He you know, had wanted posters, et cetera. And then um, he knew Rochetti because Rochetti had lived in Bolivar. Um, and so they, they, they personally knew each other. So that's an interesting thing that wasn't part of the Bonnie and Clyde story. But, um, and uh, the sheriff knew that they were wanted, um, but they, were, they had lots of guns on them. Uh, Rochetti was drunk and continuing to drink. And interestingly, during this account, the sheriff says that Prairie Boy Floyd is the one who was reasonable and basically kept trying to keep Rochetti from killing him. I, um, I found that that aspect to be particularly interesting. Me too, because he, you know, he had killed a number of um, people, including law enforcement. But my guess is he looked at there was no reason to kill him. Is it? is kind of the way I, I figure is that he decided that. Plus, 
um, they say that, you know, they were uh, wanting to get out of town. So they basically take Rochetti's brother's car, and it's a new car. Um, and the sheriff and Prue Boy Floyd starts start talking about their kids, basically. Yes. Um, and on reflection, the sheriff thinks that is probably what kept him alive is that kind of connection they ended up making. And ultimately, um, Rochetti kept saying he wanted to kill the sheriff. And um, they, they basically end up outside of uh, Clinton, Missouri at deep water trying to um, change cars again. And um, so they end up making the sheriff stop a car and they take that car and the driver, his name was Griffith, they take him hostage and basically um, they end up going to Kansas City. Right. And by this account, that the, the sheriff, you know, is the one who said, well, I know I know how to get Kansas City from here. And so it's not even clear that they intended to go to Kansas City. Mm. They get to Kansas City. And they let them out in Lee Summit. Free Boy Floyd gives them money and tells them to have have dinner and then take the car and go home which they do yes the next morning about 7 a.m the kansas city mass uh the kansas city massacre occurs yes it does and because sheriff killingsworth reports this incident and they they know that um no he he doesn't he's pretty rambunctious tonight well i think he's wanting to come in here with his wife oh i know that's why he wants but he's he was pretty rambunctious earlier um but um so they're able to verify that free boy floyd was in kansas city the day it had pretty much the day it happened released the night before which implicates him in the massacre implicates him and he ends up sending a letter to the investigators in Kansas City saying, I didn't do it. And that letter is postmarked from Springfield. So he had been back in Springfield. Oh. Um, so two, two questions, two questions uh-huh. just in terms of conjecture. One, Springfield is a long way from state lines. Yeah. What, what do you think is the, the appeal of Springfield as a hub for a variety of these incidents. Route 66, for one thing, uh, just getting from one place to another, uh, a lot of these, you know, Bonnie and Clyde, Pretty Boy Floyd, a lot of their bank robberies happened in Oklahoma. So you get away from there or you're somewhere and you travel to it. 
Pretty Boy Floyd had also operated out of Ohio a lot earlier in his criminal career. So I think he would go through there and he'd go home to Oklahoma. And so you'd be passing through. That makes sense. <clears throat> and that so I think, I think that's the case in, in a lot of those situations of what was going on. Um, but um, so, what, so what was um, happening at the same time that basically a car, a car, a car breaks down, so they need a, another car, they, they stop and ball over, end up in Kansas City, and at the same time, the Kansas City Massacre happens. And the Kansas City Massacre was um, a situation where a low-level mobster, Jelly Nash, uh, had escaped from prison. And they had um, caught up with him. The US Marshals had caught up with him and arrested him in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and were taking him to Leavenworth. Um, and his wife and a gangster out of Minnesota, Vern Miller, decided we're going to break him out. And um, so they had actually met in Joplin, Missouri, with Harold Deffy Farmer, who ran a, a large safe house for gangsters for the mob uh, in Joplin to plan the Kansas City Massacre. And originally it was going to happen in Joplin and then they changed it to happen at Union Station in Kansas City. That Real quickly, that, that safe house in Joplin, historically, mm -hmm. do we know where it is located? Do, do folks know where it was located or is it is that- there, there are very, I've heard various, accounts of where it was, but I, I don't know um, definite. Um, I do not know definite address. Uh, there is also, um, I, I have also heard from someone actually not long ago that um, her father, that she was an elderly woman, in her early 80s, and that her father and mother lived in an apartment in Joplin um, during this time period, and that um, uh, at one point, uh, sort of a dangerous looking man came to their door knocking and asking for Pretty Boy Floyd, mm. saying that he had lived at that apartment at one point. Now that I don't know, but that was the story handed down in her family. She said that was actually before she was a little before she was born. Uh, which is a not uh, not unsettling experience. Exactly, and, and that's how she said her father described it. It was pretty unsettling to have, to answer that door and, and and get that kind of statement, you know. Um, so. You know, these guys, they, they got around a lot. So, um, but, and there is a legend, there actually is a legend in this area that Pretty Boy Floyd was at the meeting planning the Kansas City Massacre. Um, but the fact that this was happening over just, you know, two or three days from the time they um, caught 
Jelly Nash to the massacre. And we know that Free Boy Floyd was in Springfield and in Boulder. It does make you wonder, was he really at that meeting or not? But there, there's a legend that supposedly he was and that he mailed a um, postcard to the Joplin Police Department from Joplin saying, you missed me and signing it. Um, that's never been, that's not been confirmed by the police department or anything. And I tend to, I tend to think it is more legend. Mm -hmm. um, and that may, that may have been embellished by Harold Farmer over time because he ended up doing time in Alcatraz for planning the massacre. And he tried to name um, the uh, Barker Carpus um, gang, uh, the Ma Barker boys, as the shooters. When um, mm. law enforcement approval determined they knew that they were not in the area. They couldn't have been in the area. Although Carpus and Free Boy Floyd, actually, they knew each other and I think had, had uh, spent time in prison together. So, you know, all of these guys had some connections. <clears throat> Which comes back to the the question in this regard with Pretty Boy Floyd is in the immediate area. He's transitioning Springfield to Bolivar to Kansas City. The Kansas City massacre takes place. The shooter is described by mm -hmm. an eyewitness and the description is similar to Pretty Boy Floyd. But it is similar, but but then but then witnesses also identify the shooters as Vern Miller and his partner. Yes, with who could also have fit that description. Yeah. Now, it is likely fair to say that for for a variety of reasons, Floyd is top of the list. He was at that time, and and, and certainly um, uh, Jager Hoover pushed him being the top of the list, and um, and actually used the Kansas City massacre as a tool, PR tool, to um, gain more authority from Congress for the FBI. Um, now, uh, Free Boy Floyd ironically maintained to the end that he did not, he was not involved, he was not the shooter. Yes. Um, and this gets a little interesting actually when they do catch him a year later in Ohio and the FBI, FBI is there, and actually uh, Purvis is there, and Purvis is the agent that Elliot Ness and the Untouchables is based on. He was there. Um, they actually, um, there's a shootout. The officer who shot Free Boy Floyd uh, later said that Purvis ordered another agent to kill Free Boy Floyd because they shot him, they put him under an apple tree. Purvis said, I wanna ask him questions. And he asked him about whether or not he uh, was involved with the Kansas City massacre. Floyd denies it. 
And later, the officer said, Smith says that Purvis ordered another agent to shoot him, to fire into him, um, to get him to talk. And the guy empties a submachine gun into Floyd's body, which of course kills him. And later the officer, officer Smith asked, well, do you think the FBI covered this up? And he said, yes, because they didn't want people to know that he died that way. Oh, <clears throat> it does get interesting and messy in a great big hurry. Yes, it, it does. That, oh, so question, do you believe based on the evidence currently at hand that Pretty Boy Floyd was involved in the Kansas City Massacre? I think it's unlike, I think it's fairly unlikely. Um, it seems that way to me as also. Well, and I, he worked alone mainly. And if, if it were, if, if Nash had been a personal friend of his, um, maybe, um, but Nash was, was in the mob and it seems more likely that someone like Vern Miller would have done it because of the mob connection. And actually, uh, later on, after all of this, um, there, there was a lot of credible information that the Chicago outfit basically, you know, ordered Vern Miller, you know, go back home and stay out of trouble because they believed that he had was the one that had done this and, and basically put a lot of heat on people. So um, I, you know, it's, it's hard to know for sure, but I tend to think he didn't have anything to do with that. Um, I do wonder whether or not he was at the, uh, the young family farm though in Brookline. <laughs> yes. And that brings up another question since I'm just feeling like conjecturing. <laughs> what would be the possibility that Adam Rochetti was also at the Brookline farm? It's possible uh, because they, they did work together at times, but not always. So, and I don't know, I don't know offhand if, if anyone knows where Rochetti was at that particular day. Um, yeah. If he was there, that's certainly, I mean, he, he, he was known to have to be less predictable and more volatile. So that's certain, I could see that happening. I, I can as well. If, if Rochette could be placed at, in Brookline mm -hmm. at the Young Brothers Massacre, or if his his whereabouts could be placed somewhere near Springfield immediately prior or immediately following, but not accounted for on the day. Right. It would be yeah. very, very interesting. It is, it is, it is pretty well said that no one can really account for where Floyd was on that day. So that that is one reason that people tend to think that he might have been there and been the been the initial shooter anyway. Yes, it would be um, 
to me fascinating if again i'm i'm basing this off of the the first person account uh of killingsworth Mm -hmm. and his interaction with both floyd and rachetti that rachetti seems to be much more unstable yes and well and um that seems to be you know uh accounts at different points in time not just with these events with rachetti and um, um, when they actually caught Rochetti um, shortly before Pretty Boy Floyd, they had, they were not together at that time. And um, um, he de- he denied that they were there too, as well uh, for the for the massacre in Kansas City. Um, yeah. Uh, it it does get messy it's it messy does. in a big hurry and leaving a lot of unanswered questions there simply are a large number of unanswered questions involving so many facets of these stories they really are but it it does but those questions are part of the why it, reason why, as you said, a lot of these people ended up with folk songs written about them. Yes, it does. It does. And, and as bloody and as terrible as it was, it created a created an era. It really did. But, you know, sort of the, the flip side of that is it, it is really surprising, though, that the Young Brothers are so unknown, relatively speaking. I think that's fair. That's very fair, especially considering considering the uh, the casualty count yes. outside of Republic, Missouri. Exactly. And so, you know, that, that part is surprising because... Um, I mean, you you had number of officers killed and, and shot, almost equaling the number that Pretty Boy Floyd shot in his career or Clive Barrow shot in his career, all right. in six minutes. Yeah. <clears throat> the the actual location. My my assumption is it's private property. It is private property. Yeah. <clears throat> for those who are listening it's private property so don't go there yes and and uh and we do ask you to respect that but but the house is still it is still there um repaired over time so um but not owned by the family anymore very before, we, before we yes before we uh turn to a couple other uh, true crime cases. Um, Why don't we just talk about maybe one of the most infamous hauntings of Springfield? Mm -hmm. Oh, which one would you like to cover? Uh, Pythian Castle. Oh, of course, we get a lot of questions about Pythian Castle. We do. 
uh, you and I have both been there uh, separately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, State of the Ozarks has published an article on the Pythian Castle mm-hmm. back in 2015, I believe. And it's a, it's a beautiful location and it is, it is uh, open for tours. It is, and ghost tours specifically. And, which, is, which is how I found out about it. And <clears throat> it looks like a castle. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And at the time that it was constructed, it was opened in 1913 uh, by the Fraternal Order of, of the Pythian Knights. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> it uh, was at the time on the extreme uh, northeast corner of the, the Springfield metropolitan area. And was really considered to be a, a huge step in development of Springfield, which apparently worked. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Springfield, the, the, the city fathers, quote unquote, uh, of Springfield were very anxious for the, uh, for the honor of getting a Pythian castle. Mm-hmm. And there, was a, there were a number of other cities that were vying for this facility. And so it was, it was definitely a, a positive coup for Springfield and involved uh, actually building with, with the promise that if the Pythian Castle was constructed in Springfield, that they would build uh, the streetcar line all the way out uh, yeah. at the time. <clears throat> and that even though it looks very Gothic, uh, and, and it is constructed of Carthage limestone. Mm-hmm. It was opened in 1913. So relatively speaking, it is somewhat new. I use that, that new in quotes. <laughs> it's newer than it appears. <laughs> it, it looks like a Gothic castle or it does. Uh, manor. And for people who might not be familiar with uh, the Knights of Pythias, uh, especially during that time, it was to a degree a, a fraternal order that also functioned as family insurance if the knight, the, the male member of the family who was a member of the fraternal order, if he were to die, uh, that his widow and or orphans would have uh, the safeguard of a home. They could go to one of the Pythian castles. There were a number of them located across North America and seek uh, refuge, essentially, where uh, widows and, and, uh, and orphans would be cared for. They would, their financial needs would be met and their, their personal needs, uh, food, shelter, that sort of thing, until they could take care of themselves or until they until they passed away of old age in the case of a, of a widow, uh, but also that uh, otherwise destitute knights, members of the fraternal order could also retire there. So mm-hmm. it was one part, it, it was definitely a, uh, a, a, an element of the, of the social services of that era. Mm-hmm. And it was half retirement home, half orphanage. Yes, I think for a lot of people, um, 
that this is pre-social security days, things like that, that most people never had a pension or retirement. And so um, if something drastic happened to the family, you often had people who just simply could not support themselves. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, it was a means to, to deal with those situations. And when it was built, it was basically out by itself and it had a big buffer area around it. And, and um, whereas today it's pretty well in the middle of town, you know, but it, it is. And unfortunately, easy to overlook just based on this location. Right. With, where everything else around it is, it, you know, it's sort of if you don't know how to get there, you don't get there type thing. Um, <laughs> but but once, once you're there, you know you're there. Oh, yeah, it's hard to miss once you realize it. Um, and then, you know, it, it took a, a bit of a turn during World War II. Yes, um, and, and I think that is particularly fascinating at the, the beginning um, of the, the buildup of the war effort. It was uh, a lot of troops were, were transitioned through the space. Mm -hmm. um, and and one, of the, one of the main mm, sort of public areas was, was opened up as a, as a, as a mm, sort of USO dance hall um, for, for young servicemen and uh, the <clears throat> young ladies of Springfield to, uh, you know, enjoy one another's company. Mm -hmm. And then it, as, as part of the, the U.S. military requisitioning, it became a small POW prison. Yes. And uh, uh, a number of, uh, of uh, Nazi POWs were, were housed in the basement. And that, that, <laughs> that sounds bad, um, but the basement is massive. Yes, yes, and, and not necessarily what people would think maybe a dungeon or something like that, it's not that. No, uh, and one uh, Japanese prisoner of war, which mm -hmm. I found very extremely evocative. Uh, the, the report of the, of the prisoners were that the, uh, uh, the, the European uh, prisoners of war tended to be very uh, antagonistic and very, very difficult to interact with. Uh, the, the one um, member, Japanese member of the POW, and we don't currently know his, his name or what happened to him other than that yeah. at the end of the war, he returned to Japan, um, but that he uh, was mm, <clears throat> very, that the, 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 uh, the prison guards enjoyed working with him and one of his, his only notable request was uh, paintbrushes and paint. And he uh, painted a, a beautiful mural mm -hmm. on his prison wall, which is still there today. Yes, yes. And there, I don't know, there's just something that, it, that, that is very evocative about that, so. It is. Uh, after the war, for a time, it was empty, off and mm -hmm. on, in the second half of the 20th century. There's one, uh, to me, very uh, 
to interesting story of a, of a young boy who lived in that neighborhood in the 1960s, who grew up playing, quote unquote, with the children in the basement. Mm -hmm. And uh, would crawl into, uh, into the basement through uh, an open window and spend hours playing, quote unquote, with the children. Mm -hmm. And the building was abandoned. There were no children in the building. Yeah, and, and I, I don't believe that the Pythians reoccupied it after World War II, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly, is that right? My, that is my understanding as well. Yeah, so basically, pretty much off and on, it was, it was empty after the war. Um, I know ultimately the city owned it, and in the 90s, they, they put it up for sale because they viewed it as a white elephant. And um, uh, uh, I actually, I actually considered uh, putting in a bid on it, and then chickened out because I didn't have a whole lot of money. And one person bid, and he he bid uh, four thousand dollars, and and so he got fifty castle for four thousand dollars. Wow! And it was rough in some places he renovated enough rooms to to live in and lived in it for several years and then sold it to the current owner for a substantial six-figure amount well and it is it it's difficult to for those of us who are Okay, so I, I find this interesting. On one level, we're used to large cavernous box store department building type structures, huge strip malls, huge um, mall-like structures, giant Walmart super centers, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But these are large disposable boxes. Yeah. They are, they are structures that are meant to be taken down as easily, if not more easily than they're put up. Uh, they, they are not, they, these buildings are not representations of craftsmanship. These buildings are not meant to last mm, generation after generation after generation. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, and I think intuitively we understand and we recognize that and just the simply, simply the, the existence of large space does not typically impress us at this point. We don't walk into a Walmart supercenter and gasp in amazement that this many acres is, you know, <laughs> under, under steel girders. We're just like, fine, where's the bread? Uh, or whatever. But the, the, the juxtaposition with structures like the Pythian Castle, including the Pythian Castle, these structures that are truly massive structures but they are meant to last forever they were built with extraordinary um artisanship inside and out we're dealing with with these beautifully hewn blocks of carthage limestone uh we're dealing with incredibly ornate woodworking hardwood um motifs throughout there 
it is just the entire building is this massive and admittedly expensive to maintain work of art. Yes. And for that, yeah, I have to hand it to the current owner. <laughs> You've done a good yes. job. Yes, it is, and it is beautiful. It was, it was one of the things that was, was really notable to me was how beautiful it was with just, you know, just going through the tour. And so we do, I do recommend, I think we do both recommend, if you get a chance to see the Pythian Castle, you should do so. Not just at Halloween, although it's fun at Halloween, but really anytime that you can. Definitely. And, you know, there, there are accounts of, of activity uh, to this day. Um, yeah. And um, it has been the subject of some of the reality shows. Yes. Um, probably most notably the Haunted Collector and <laughs> um, my understanding is that they decided that a, a particular sword uh, was a focal point of activity there and it was removed and the show stated that um, you know the owner later confirmed that activity had subsided and uh, I do know it, it affected their ticket sales for a while but um, that seems to have been resolved yes now my 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 guess and I, I I've not seen this, that particular episode uh, my guess is that the sword was believed to belong to one of the knights or someone associated with the castle. I, I, I believe so, yes, if, if I recall correctly. And I, I, I should, I've seen the episode and um, it, 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 in sequence, it was the episode that was after an episode that I actually was on on that um, show. But um, I, I do believe it was one of the knight's swords. Now, something that... <clears throat> is interesting and we don't seem to have a lot of of details of number of deaths in the castle etc right that said it was a a retirement home and an orphanage yeah i, I i'm sure there were a number and but i i'm not sure how those records were kept and I'm not sure where burials were made if, it, if they were pauper's graves or if I imagine the Pythians provided for burials as well but I don't know that would be, that would be my guess um it, it would be interesting to dig into it um presumably they they would have been buried in in one of Springfield cemeteries I, I would assume so but um I, I've never really heard any details on that either. So um, I think you know you've had a lot of you had a lot of people go through that space in that time period, and then you had yes. then you had all that activity during the war, which some of it was very pleasant, very you know positive, happy energy, or at least anticipatory with USO, etc. And then you know, you had energy while it was 
basically a prison camp that yes. um, could range from sadness to anger, etc. So it would not surprise me if there isn't some sort of energy there. I I, I agree. It, there's just there have been so many people within that space at so many different transitional points of life and yeah. death. Exactly. And then, I mean, you know, I can't discount the, the narrative from the 60s of playing with kids in the, in the basement. Um, and, you know, there may well have been some of the children that passed while they were there, but I don't know. Very true. And, and again, I think it, it, it stands to reason over the course of decades that yeah. these things occurred. Um, but unfortunately, the, the details uh, may be very difficult to, to obtain. The, the details may simply have been lost. And that's, that's true. Um, and but, you know, who knows how much energy is retained in that Carthage marble? <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, <laughs> uh, so uh, when you get a chance to go, go check it out for yourself. And uh, and again, I think so many of the these these points, and we talk about this on the tours, but this type of uh, of tour, these type this type of tourism, I, I think in the long run is extraordinary because it's helping to preserve so many incredibly important locations. And giving people contests to their local history. It does. It really does. So I, I love the place. I do too. I do too. And since, you know, architecture is sort of a focal point with it, maybe we should just kind of delve a little bit into um, downtown tunnels and an infamous case that, of the area that has a tie to it. Absolutely. Uh, so, of course, you know, <clears throat> spoiler alert, vampires in Springfield. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that it's a, such a persistent um, subject. And it, it, it predates the crime it's associated with, which, of course, is the Feeney murders. Um, it, it, and by, it predates it by a lot and in different, different ways and different times. The, the, the first thing that may have given rise to this, whether it's an urban legend or old lore or uh, certain people doing certain things that other people don't know about and we just aren't sure, mm -hmm. is that the, the area that Springfield the, the down to the downtown Springfield area is built upon was was originally a location with lots and lots of uh, springs and creeks. Mm -hmm. And in order to develop the metro, those you can't just get rid of water. Uh, you can't just stamp your fingers and have water not be there. And, Very true. And, and, and I think it, it is a, a little... Uh, a little ironic in this regard because that those fresh water sources would have been a primary reason to settle Springfield in the early days mm -hmm. and then as uh as, as uh you know modern or urban uh water management and 
clean water facilities, et cetera, et cetera, become a thing, and as Springfield's population grows, that same water that, that helped found the city becomes a bit of a problem. What do we do with, uh, you know, growing the, growing the city? And the result is a very extensive uh, drainage tunnel system that mm -hmm. exists of out of sight. Now, of course, cities, lots, any city has a, has a, has a drainage uh, grid network, but we're dealing with very extensive, in some cases, old creek beds, in some cases, uh, cavern networks, and then um, several, you know, structured layers of, of drainage tunnels with a modern city built over the top of it so that you can't see any of that unless you know to look. Right. <clears throat> Those locations have become uh, refuge spots for a variety of populations, uh, including the indigent population uh, mm -hmm. of Springfield at various times, all, all the way up to the current day. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, gathering places for a wide variety of people for a wide variety of reasons. Exactly. And and the initial vampire lore around Springfield isn't even connected to the tunnels. So there's that too. Yes. And the and what what do we have on documentation for the the pre-tunnel lore? My my understanding is at least a couple of accounts of uh, uh, frightening people doing scary things at the turn of the century from from positions of a potential authority. That's basically my what I found too is just a couple of anecdotal stories that um, seem to be indicative of some sort of bloodlust activity and um, and uh, the stories being that that there's a you know a group of vampires um, or what we would say is lifestyle now you know uh, yeah yeah and so but all of that predates the sort of the pop culture and the larger movement of this subculture that really came about out of the seven late 70s and 80s into the 90s. Um, Thank you, Anne Rice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it just seems to be an odd place that you would have these anecdotal stories in Springfield, Missouri versus I don't know, New Orleans or someplace like that, where you, you have more of this sort of subculture anyway. Um, so I find that curious, but I do too. But with the, the tunnels, it really is more connected to particularly the 90s. Um, and it, it was it was brought to the attention of a lot of people through coverage of the Feeney murder trial. Uh, in the mid 90s um, because um, John Feeney who was accused of killing his wife and children um, it came out um, 
was, you know, involved in, you know, playing, you know, vamp, you know, the Vampire the Masquerade and um, almost a cosplay LARPing kind of uh, activity. And, um, but there, but it ended up being tied in all of that to a lot of tales of a vampire cult that would meet in the, in the tunnels under downtown. Under downtown. And it's, there's a lot of moving parts. My understanding is, well, what's the status of this case? Of, of the Feeney murders, he was acquitted and technically mm-hmm. the case is unsolved at this point. Correct, correct. Um, I need to st- check on my ghost hunting dog. He's making strange okay. noise. Um, okay. But it'll just take me just a second. If you don't mind going over, just familiarizing folks with the the, the initial details of the case. And I'll be okay. back in a second. Okay. Um, basically, um, the case um, came about in... Um, February of 1995, um, they, the family um, was at home, except for the father, John, who, he was a teacher, and he was at a conference for work at the Lake of the Ozarks, and uh, there were two children, an infant, and, um, or a toddler, and, um, Jennifer, uh, six-year-old boy, Tyler, and then Cheryl Feeney, who was the mother. And they were found um, dead, the the baby being uh, strangled. And um, Tyler and his mother being uh, bludgeoned and by a pipe. And the the case ended up focusing on John with the theory that he had come back he had come back from the conference committed the crime and then went back the net you know by the next morning to be at the conference as as a means of an alibi um and there there was circumstantial evidence that made people think that maybe he had a motive. He had increased his life insurance in the months before uh, on his wife uh, for a quarter million dollars, taking out an additional quarter million dollars uh, insurance on her life. Um, There was a witness at a nearby gas station who um, said that he had sold gas to man resembling uh, John Feeney uh, in the early morning hours after the, after the murders, um, and he recognized the car, which was a red Mustang convertible. However, um, it was later found that he wasn't working on that day, so he must have been thinking of another day. Um, was sort of the conclusion. Um, you know, people. I think people wondered about this because he continued to live in the home 
that his entire family was murdered in over the course of a little over a year between it happening and the trial. Um, and I, I remember at the time, a lot of people were just like, they couldn't believe how could someone do that. Um, and, um, but ultimately they could not um, find the smoking gun and he was acquitted but sort of the conspiracy theory or urban legend aspects of all this uh, really built up around this idea of a vampire cult. And yeah. at various times, um, there's been what, you know, people will say there's a church that meets down there and it's a satanic church or a quote hell church or whatever. Um, now, you know, I do know someone personally who um, had an experience down there. Um, you, you will find if you start looking at this on, on the internet that people will say, I've never heard of this. And there's, you know, there's nothing like this going on. It didn't go on, you know, before and it's not going on now. Now I can tell you when I was in college, there were tales of groups meeting down there and weird things happening not necessarily vampires but certainly that there was something going on that those were rumors and this you know predates the Feeney trial um the situation that I'm aware of was someone having a personal experience exploring the tunnels and coming upon um a chair in the middle of one of the tunnels with someone sitting in it and hearing what sounds like chanting or singing etc um further down and being chased out of the tunnel um is a number of years after the Feeney trial more than probably 15 years afterwards so you're, you're talking about things that predate this as well as much uh afterwards so uh i think it's it's hard to say there's absolutely nothing to it i think it did get sensationalized during this trial agreed and it's <clears throat> obviously the the acquittal is on public record yes it's and i think that's very important to note there there's as, as you've already noted there, there's some very interesting um message threads out mm -hmm. there in, in regards to this this topic and some of those threads can get very uh very dark and very combative mm -hmm. quickly yeah and they're from a from a um sociological standpoint it is of course interesting to note because on the on the surface it could easily be one of these situations where oh my goodness somebody's playing dungeons and dragons uh dungeons and dragons is of the devil and here we go and this is you know 80s and 90s culture that doesn't look at role-playing games and uh, and and post Tolkien um, 
uh, culture and and gaming the same way that it does now. And I think and that's general. very accurate, accurate, particularly video gaming. Um, I think that that aspect of pop culture has changed our views on role playing and cosplay so much that I think that if all I basically what you know what is you know what what was brought out in the trial is basically you know he had played Magic the Gathering and had played role playing games but I mean there was even evidence that he's Okay. Okay. We just had a little, we have a little production issue here. Um, okay. But um, uh, I think if the same, if, if the same sort of set of facts were presented today, it would not have the same effect. Right. I, I think that there's, there's certainly a bulwark and, and, and I would say an appropriate one uh, built uh, sociologically that doing these things is not oh my goodness that's super weird that's super strange what are you doing and it's much more difficult to build uh, uh, rumors or jump to conclusions around someone who does this sort of thing because so many people do and obviously harmlessly and for for a lot of positive reasons I know a ton of people who play D&D &D. Uh, I don't myself but I also do cosplay and wear antlers uh, to <laughs> events so i'm you know right right in there with the rest of y'all quote unquote but i i think that whether or not this case actually had any connection to the strange things happening in the tunnels it did resonate or strike a nerve with a number of people who had either heard Mm -hmm. of these things happening or had first person experience or or immediate knowledge of things happening down there i i think so and then and then it it very well it, it startled people who had had no information about that yes and yeah. so uh, yeah it, it just seemed like it was that perfect storm of the time that it happened and the set of information to create this whirlwind of uh, supposition that even today seems to get darker and darker on some of these message boards. It, it does. It, this it far really out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much so. So it's, it is a fascinating aspect of Springfield culture, sort of the, the underground of Springfield culture, literally and figuratively. And um, some of those mysteries are very much still unsolved. And speaking of unsolved mysteries, probably yeah. the, the biggest one in, in Springfield, of course, is the three missing women. Um, yeah. Yes, it Stacey is. Stacey McCall, Susie Streeter, and Cheryl Lovett. Mm -hmm. um, and it's you know an unsolved case as well and with more questions than answers and it's it's one that 
startled the community, um, not because of these, you know, details, you know, like in the Feeney case that seemed to be just over the top and different from everyday goings on. But in this situation, for the lack of details of what happened. Right. We have a still unexplained disappearance. Yes. And from a moment in time that that everyone experiences pretty much. Uh, you, you're talking about two girls, Susie Streeter and Stacy McCall, graduating from high school, ending up at um, Susie's house that night. They initially were going to spend the night with another friend and then all go to Branson the next morning. Mm -hmm. And their friend's house, there was a number of people there um, visiting. And so they decided to go to Susie's house. And Stacy McCall called her mother and told her that they were going over to Susie's and they would leave in the morning then. Um, and they know they got there, their car, they each drove their cars over there. They were at the house. Um, looks like they did go to bed because Susie's, it, it looked as if the girls had slept in Susie's bed. And the friend that they were going to go to Branson with um, starts calling in the morning. They get no answer. And so after two or three hours, she and her boyfriend go over and they find broken glass on the, on the porch. The porch light had been busted out. Um, and they're not really thinking of crime scene. And again, I think you have to, Springfield at that point was not used to a lot of kidnappings and, okay. Uh, kidnappings or murders, that kind of thing. They clean up the mess on the porch. They go through the house. It just looks like they walked out. Their purses are there. Their shoes are there. Susie and her mother both smoked and their cigarettes were sitting there. Um, and through the course of the day, a number of people come in and out. And finally, uh, Stacey McCall's mother is getting concerned because Stacy usually would check in with her. And so she ends up calling this third friend's uh, house. The sister tells them that they're trying to find them. And she goes over to Cheryl Lovett's house. And even then, she said there were about 10 people in the house. And they even wait a while longer before they call the police because they just weren't thinking of something like this. Yes. And unfortunately, that may have all of that may have uh, contaminated crime scene in a way that may have made this case more difficult. Agreed, and it's it's just it's so tragic and unfortunate 
all the way around. And this, it is still a, an, an unsolved case. There are still individuals who are working on this case. Yes. Uh, and this, this took place on June 6, 1992. It is absolutely heartbreaking in regards to the family, families and friends associated with this. And it had a huge uh, impact on the city of Springfield. It, it, it did. And I think um, as someone who was there at the time, it just, uh, and, you know, I'd lived in St. Louis and so forth. And, you know, crime was not something that I was, you know, unaware of by any means. And you had to no, you know, no clue as to what happened. Um, you know, at one point, um, Cheryl Levitt's son, Bart, was a suspect, but they cleared him. Um, years later, he um, got into uh, criminal problems, I think, in Texas, and I, I believe also in Colorado. Um, and I know I've read reports that he had been arrested on suspicion of domestic violence, uh, but years and years later. Um, so, um, and I've seen people say, well, then you know, maybe he did it. And it's like, that's, that's a huge leap of faith, or, you know, of logic rather, uh, to assume that. And of course, you know, um, they never have linked him in any way to it. Um, although apparently he'd had an argument with his mother or something. Um, but that's not certainly too out of the ordinary uh, in no. any way. Um, over, over time, there's been a, a lot of speculation of whether um, Robert Cox was involved and mainly from his own statements he was a um he'd been released from prison in florida um and he later was and he, he was convicted of killing a woman in florida um but he had, was out of prison he was in the springfield area at the time of the disappearances um he ended up in prison in Texas on another matter. And he made statements saying, he came to light because basically while he was in prison in Texas, he made statements saying he knew they were dead. Yes, <clears throat> which is it chilling. Was, it is, it was, it was investigated. Um, uh, I think it was KY3 actually went down and interviewed him, Dennis Graves. Um, and he was rather evasive, I mean, and very vague. His statement was, I know that they're dead, I'll say that, and I know that, and Graves asked him that that's not a theory, and he said, I just know that they're dead, that's not my theory, I just know that, there's no doubt about it, um, but he never gave any details. Yes. Or anything to 
to follow up on. So it's hard to know. It's hard to know whether or not there there was something there. Um, I know there's been you know search warrants and and uh, investigations on property in Webster County in Barry County um, and I think another location at some point. Um, the uh, the Barry County site actually seemed to possibly have found something, but it, they couldn't tie it to the case specifically. Um, there was blood evidence, but they couldn't tie it to the case specifically. And there was um, green metal. There had been an account of someone seeing a green van in the area and possibly Susie Street or driving it. Um, supposedly the, the morning that they disappeared. Um, and there was green metal found this site that they couldn't prove whether or not it was a van or not. Right. <clears throat> so every every time that one of these leads happens, it it ultimately leads to something that's either inconclusive or it just becomes a, a disproven end. Yeah. And you know, and and I think that's one of the things. Sometimes we we end up in a situation that we have to we we are living with literally no answers. Yes. Uh, at least at this point. Um, I mean, there's been various theories, you know, conjectures over the years, as you know, and you you'll find them if you look on the internet as to perhaps this convicted murderer was involved, or perhaps this group or maybe it was about this or that but there really has never been evidence to tie and particularly anything that's been made public correct so i think for first of all uh, our hearts go out and to yes. to everyone who's been personally affected by this case you were living in Springfield at the time. What do yeah. you feel was the, the, the fallout or the result of this case for, for folks of Springfield moving forward? Uh, there was a lot of loss of innocence, you know, that sense of those things don't happen here. Um, and um, that, you know, no, you know there, there is no immunity to random randomness um and i think i think that's probably what affected people the most is the sense of being random yes um and, and that just the the unknowing the not knowing elements do terrible things to the human psyche yes and um I, I think in some ways, it, you know, we, we've, we've talked about in other episodes about the time period of the, of the Cold War affecting people having that, you know, that sense just kind of hanging out there that you have no control. I think in a microcosm, that's what was happening in Springfield is that sense of 
looming danger, but no, no, no control or way to know that the danger is there, so to speak. Yes. And I think, obviously, we can't speak to this case specifically, but you have a really interesting background in, in interacting with, with individuals who have been victims mm -hmm. uh, of, of a variety of, of uh, very negative experiences. Yeah. What, what, just in terms of potentially uh, warning people against this type of crime, this type of violence, what would you tell people uh, to do just to make themselves less exploitable? Um, well, be aware of your surroundings. Um, and um, I think one, one thing that in this particular case that I think kind of really kind of dug into the psyche of Springfield was the sense of, was it someone they trusted because there seemed to be no struggle other than the porch light uh, being broken. Um, and you, you had, you had, you know, you have to not look at the world with rose-colored glasses, so to speak, including sometimes people around you. Um, what we do know is that they were, the girls were going over there at 2 a.m. That's when Stacy called her mother. So it happened after that and before the friend called at like 8 a.m. Yes. So you are talking about something that had to happen very late at night or very early in the morning. Mm -hmm. And so be aware. And um, if, you know, you have you have to have that sense of self-preservation um, that if something's off, act like it. Correct. <clears throat> Correct. And at, at the end of the day, better safe than sorry. Exactly. Um, and you know whether or not this you know involves someone they knew, who knows? Um, but. Um, I, I've seen a lot of I've seen a lot of people over time in my my career as an attorney they got themselves in trouble by being overly trusting and um, assuming that what they would use suspicious if it was happening in you know the neighbor's house isn't that way because it's them and their life. Correct. Correct. <sighs> so it's it is still it is a difficult and is a dark subject it is it is and we do encourage people not to just speculate um uh rumors don't help um they often stir up and i and i i recently had a situation where basically innuendo told to one person, told to someone else, uh, someone decided, oh, this it must be a clue to something and I'm mm. going to, let, let's turn it into the police. Um, if you have information, do that. But if, if it's just conjecture, 
based on no information other than gossip or rumor, what, what often happens is they're checking out leads that go nowhere. In this case, it's had over 20,000 leads. Correct, correct. And, and unfortunately, once things move into that incredibly public sphere, those types of things begin to happen. They do, they do. Um, and of course, everyone would like answers, um, yeah. but they need to be grounded in fact. They do, they do. So utilize critical thinking skills and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and the use of objective data. And at that point, if you do somehow have information at this point, please contact law enforcement. Yes, certainly do so. That might be a good place to, to end tonight. We okay. do ask everyone to um, check out upcoming events and merchandise at darkgozards.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. Thank you again to Always Buying Butts and Beard Engine Brewing Company for helping bring the Dark Ozarts to everyone. And on the next episode, we're going to be discussing Dark Winter Tales and Old Christmas right here in the Ozarks. Catch the Dark Ozarks podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast platforms. Thank you to everyone. And remember, there are no easy answers in the Dark Ozarks. <laughs>